0: You're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph, brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. From the front lines of healthcare, the home front, and other unique perspectives on learning and connecting in the time of coronavirus. Welcome to COVID Chronicles. I'm Jenny Rudolph. Over the last six weeks, we've traveled the world virtually, and we've been thinking about how to team up for COVID care in a New Hampshire emergency department and Hong Kong operating rooms. We've also thought about airway SWAT teams in France. Then we traveled to California and Queensland in Australia to explore the psychology of self-care for clinicians. And today, we'll be coming back to Boston, Massachusetts to explore the experience of two acute care team leaders on the front line of COVID-19 care. My first guest is pulmonologist and critical care physician, Laura Rock. Laura works at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and is on faculty at Harvard Medical School. Laura directs communication and teamwork for the critical care uh, enterprise uh, within the uh, ICU at Beth Israel. Welcome Laura Thank you and my second guest is Rebecca Meinhardt. Uh, Rebecca is the program director of the Obstetric Anesthesia Fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital. She and I are both in the Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care and Pain Medicine in MGH and Rebecca's also on faculty at Harvard Medical School. Rebecca's been really interested in teamwork and communication uh, under high stakes, primarily in the peri-op environment. And she's been studying what is a crisis, how do clinicians adapt to that. And she's also had a look at how do people speak up and feedback. Uh, Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. Laura, I forgot to talk a little bit about your research interests. You've been thinking a lot about how to blend emotion and cognition in conversations with families of critically ill patients, something we'll get back to later in the podcast. But also recently, you and you and I have been really interested in the role of uh, routine debriefing uh, at the unit level and what that does for both improving workflow management, but also clinician feeling of connectedness and togetherness, and we might talk a little bit about that as well. Rebecca and Laura, I wanna explore the intersection of high-stakes care, how we, well, I should say you, clinicians, connect at the front line, and emotions and psychology. I think all of us non-clinical, People have been watching with great interest and empathy and admiration, those of you who are taking care of patients. And Laura, you're a pulmonologist in a critical care unit uh, working with the sickest of the sick, COVID-19 patients. But Rebecca, you're an obstetric anesthesiologist working with moms who are giving birth, some of whom are COVID-positive some of whom might have an obstetric emergency, such as uh, hemorrhage or uh, for any number of reasons require an unplanned cesarean section. And those things just put a lot of stress on, on a normal day but under the conditions of covid-19 where you're working in sometimes makeshift spaces with new teams with new personal protective equipment with new procedures for how you might do things it requires a lot of you i would think so laura i've been a bit of a student of your ideas about what you call emotion before cognition over the last few years and I was really intrigued when I first heard you bring this up, the idea that we somehow need to focus on emotion in order to think. You know, as the daughter of a kind of German rationalist academic, I was like, what do you mean? I'm Thinking's good by itself. Could you talk to me a little bit about how you think emotion and cognition are playing out in your work right now?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, I think that the phrase emotion before cognition has a really nice ring to it. Um, But it's a little bit um, misleading because there's a strong argument that you really can't have one without the other. So emotion and cognition just have a sort of continuous interplay and there isn't really a specific pathway in the brain that is solely responsible for emotion. And a lot of areas of the brain that are traditionally considered cognitive also um, have emotion um, roles as well. You're the one who taught me about the reactions phase and debriefing. So I think that, without maybe calling it that, you were doing an emotion before cognition thing. Um, you know, a long time ago, this concept is relevant all the time. I mean, um, we have emotions throughout the day, just as humans, but uh, maybe even uh, more relevant for those of us doing critical care and other stressful jobs um, during this pandemic, because there's just so much going on for all of us emotionally, whether it's all of the uncertainty of our situation, the stresses on our home lives, the devastating isolation of our patients, and the um, fear and the like, extreme um, loss of control and connection of their family members who aren't allowed in the hospital. We are managing our own emotions. We're dealing with the emotions of our colleagues and especially our trainees as they're going through um, this work. So I think that we really ignore emotion at our peril because we really can't work well and speak up to one another and support one another the way we really need to if we aren't bringing emotion into the mix.
0: A number of times I've spoken with emergency department colleagues. ICU colleagues, OR colleagues who say, I would much rather run a code. I would much rather deal with a deteriorating patient. I would much rather have a known clinical emergency in front of me than some indeterminate, difficult family situation. Put a difficult... Clinical situation in front of me. I'm um, that's what I'm trained for. I'm comfortable. I'm good to go. One of the things that strikes me is at this moment, those situations that might be appear stressful from the outside actually can bring some sense of mastery to those of you who know how to deal with them. And what you're saying right now makes me think that those islands of mastery are temporarily gone because everything's so much more complicated because of the personal protective equipment, because of the families who can't see their loved ones, because the loved one's being isolated. I'm wondering if that's dialing up the emotional strain because there isn't a place to kind of rest.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. When I first started this very long string of shifts doing COVID critical care, I felt very insecure that I didn't know enough about the disease, that I couldn't give my patients the best possible care. And that was incredibly draining. And then, of course, a few days later, when I realized that nobody knows very much about this disease and that by falling back on run-of-the-mill, great, basic critical care, I could give my patients um, what they need, I felt more relaxed. So I do think that our stress Um, about not being good enough or not offering enough or not providing uh, the best is incredibly draining. And when we feel um, both maybe some of the shame of a lack of mastery, but also just the concern that we may not be able to care as well as we possibly need to for our patients, it's very stressful. And it is a loss of this feeling of security after feeling very
2: skilled. I was just reflecting on the stress and strain that has been taking its toll I think on myself and others um and just like how intense we were sort of had mentioned this before this recording but the stress um was the the emotions were much more intense at the beginning and everything felt really really hard and the emotions and anxiety were running really really high and now um I'm feeling like at least some of the stuff is getting more, I hate to say routine, because emergencies and difficult situations, you know, there's there's really not always a routine to them. But some elements are things that I figured out, for example, trying to assess somebody who's having a cesarean delivery in the operating room, seeing if they've bled too much and we need to give them blood. Um With their mask on, you can't tell how pink their lips are. And so trying to figure out other ways to help my patients, you know, uh, just to assess them, to connect with them, to give them the care that I think they need, that's been challenging, but at least it's becoming more uh, like I'm getting the handle of some of those things. On the other hand, uh, I was sharing that I feel just really fatigued. I feel like, so um, just, I, like everyone else, wishes for normalcy, like every day, <laughs> all the time. And um, it's just, uh, it's just been an interesting process to go through.
0: So Laura Rock and Rebecca Meinhart, um, you're talking about the fact that initially at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was pretty cranked up emotionally now the adrenaline sort of worn off the acute care challenges are still there fatigue is gradually setting in and that strikes me as quite difficult the intersection between thinking like a doctor and feeling like a human must at times be quite difficult and As I noted earlier, those islands of mastery and normalcy that allow you to not think quite so hard, that allow you to do automatic thinking rather than deliberate and deliberative thinking, um, are more frequent in the usual world and less frequent now. And I'm wondering how that is something that you can find some relief from? Or how do you sustain yourself to keep thinking like a doctor in a very stressful moment? What are your sources of resilience? What are your sources of uh, challenge?
2: This is a story just from very recently. Um, I had a colleague who used to be a fellow of mine who recently left uh, for another position at another prestigious institution. And we had a goodbye party for him with just 3 of us there, and at the end of that, he said, "I really want to give you guys a hug, but I know that's not safe. What do you think?" And we had this debate about just giving each other hugs. It was like it was surreal, and in the end I gave him a hug and afterwards stressed about it because I was like, "Did I just Did I I wasn't thinking like a doctor. That's not what people do when they're thinking medically. And yet I wanted to just connect with my friend who's, I'm not going to see, I don't know when I'll see him next. So that is the challenge. I think just even some of those very, I feel like the trying to think like a doctor and make the right decisions and all that uh, does bump up sometimes with just wanting to be human and wanting to uh, connect with people and and all of the things that we're all dealing with right now. Some of the resilience, I would say, comes from, well, I, I mean, I, I have been uh, friends with Laura for a very long time. We've had some early conversations during, during this crisis where, I mean, we just basically supported each other. And that has been hugely helpful for me, finding people to, uh, who understand what that challenge is like Um, and hearing how they deal with things, I've learned a lot from that. I've also, uh, I also have a coach. So I got a coach who is helping me with promotions because I want to become an associate professor, not just assistant. Uh, But I've kept working with a coach uh, through this time. And that has been just tremendous, tremendously helpful for me um, to find ways to, to do self-care, heal, um, decompress, rejuvenate.
0: Um, so yeah. A little worried. I may have created a bit of a false dichotomy, but I think it is there. Descartes famously wrote, I think be, therefore I am. And then, uh, in the, you know, maybe 20 years ago, a book by the name of Descartes error came out, uh, by, uh, the researcher Antonio Damasio. Um, popularizing an idea that had been in the psychology research literature for a while, that basically there is no cognition without emotion. That emotion structures, contains, guides, motivates, makes us make sense of our cognitions. And um, I think part of what you're talking about, Rebecca Meinhardt, is that having a relationship with a Another clinician who's a good friend and you can rely on, like Laura Rock, allows you to sort of contain those emotions, and um, having a coach allows you to contain those emotions. But Laura, you've kind of taken that work um, deeper and further as you think about how emotion and cognition interact um, into the idea that emotions often guide us. They're almost a portal into what we think. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that in the context of this moment or maybe your work with families of critically ill patients right now.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think that there are two critical concepts that I think about when it comes to responding to emotion or addressing emotion. And one is that when emotion is really intense, it can be very hard to participate and, um, be present in conversations and collaboration when it comes to patient care. So if a family member, for example, in my situation, most of my patients are unconscious and can't communicate. So I'm dealing mostly with their family members or their loved ones. If they're so emotional, or there's such an intensity to their emotion, then they really can't participate. They can't think clearly and they, they can't collaborate with me and our team. The other point is that the raw emotion itself may not actually be um, a true explanation of the values that are underlying the emotion. So we really need to explore the emotion to better understand what's causing that reaction. So it's really two points. One is that we don't want to suppress the emotion or make it go away. We want to accept it and embrace it so that it takes off a little bit of the intensity so that people can participate and the other is that we really want to create an environment where people feel willing to explore a little bit so they understand where their own emotions are coming from and this is really critical when it comes to end of life conversations and um, the kinds of decisions that people make because when we when we are only reacting to our raw human emotions we may make decisions that are actually not in the best interest of our loved ones or even ourselves.
0: Laura, just to help us imagine how this might play out, could you possibly give us an example of that process? You know, what you might hear from a family member and then how you might uh, worm your way into... What are they thinking behind that, or what are they? What are their values behind that? How does that work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I actually had a really, really um, complicated situation yesterday with um, a family member of a patient who is dying with COVID, and he has um, end stage acute respiratory failure. He is not intubated, and there were a lot of conversations over the last few days about his code status because. He is a very elderly person with a lot of comorbidities, and I think um, any critical care um, clinician would probably come to the same conclusion, which is that if he got intubated, his um, outcome would be very poor, even if he survived. Uh, So this patient has been cared for by so many different teams of, of providers over the last several days, which is an issue that is Impairing a lot of our trust building and communication efforts in all hospitals. Um, and this actually wasn't at Beth Israel, but another hospital where I work. And um, when I finally spoke to the patient's brother, who's his healthcare proxy, he had just been so sick of talking to so many different people. And a lot of, he really had the sense that everyone who talked to him had sort of an agenda and He actually was so frustrated and so scared that he reversed the patient's code status from um, do not intubate to full code sometime during his hospital course because he just was so fed up with the process and with the communication. And I think it took saying out loud how frustrating this process of being cared for by so many different people is and how... just sort of helping him talk through how frustrated he was with previous conversations and um, really trying to get to know him and his brother and his entire family better that allowed me to develop a relationship with him and and create a sense of trust between us so that he actually really did trust my opinion. He told me that he also um, went and Googled everything I said after we got off the phone. (laughs) And, (laughs) um, because I was telling him how concerned I was about ICU delirium, particularly for his brother, for a variety of reasons. And he felt like Dr. Google confirmed some of what I had been saying, but, you know, I think that it's really hard to take the time to have these long conversations when we're stressed and, and overwhelmed with patients and with, um, very sick situations and, um, It really helped in the situation because I was able to just kind of address the emotion and get to a place where he could go cognitive with me. And um, we were able to make some really, uh, I think we were able to make some decisions that are appropriate and also that he felt comfortable with.
0: So, Laura, it's um, reminding me for some reason almost of. a very different context, but like divorce court or um you know a, a couple that's fighting uh, in the midst of a divorce where if one doesn't feel heard the that person may zig to a much more extreme position than they would normally take if the partner made them feel like they were heard, even in the divorce and so you're saying that this patient who had had one care plan with the hospital, reversed it in the face of not feeling heard, and then was able to kind of get back to a place where they could come to a a, a care plan that you and other colleagues thought was was strong. And it was by taking a little time and sitting there and listening and inquiring. It's these little things that I think
1: we often do really naturally with our friends that help our friends feel heard that we do out of a kind of natural curiosity that help people realize that we're seeing their loved one as an individual and not just as a physiology
0: experiment. So, and w- and what is that?
1: Well, for example, if, a, if some, you know, if I say, well, tell me about, I'm going to make this up. So it's not about yeah. my actual patient, but you know, if I say, well, tell me, you know, tell, just tell me, it's so much more fun for me if I know your brother more as a person than just as a patient. So like, what is he, you know, what, what's been, um, what kinds of things have made him happy? And, you know, tell me about a good day. And he, if his brother said, well, he works in a sandwich shop and he's been working there for 30 years and he loves it. If I say, if I sort of just accept that and move on to, you know, okay, does he drink or smoke? Like, so I can get my sort of agenda of a social history done. That doesn't help him feel heard and appreciated. But if I, if I say, oh, well, what's his favorite sandwich? And how did he name the sandwiches? And, you know, all of a sudden, I'm actually showing interest in this individual. And it, I think it helps the family members, especially why they, while they can't be here, feel like, oh my God, this person actually wants to know and really cares.
2: I have to say that's. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, I have to say that that's the, those little investments are so important. So I do something similar with my OB patients where, you know, they come into the operating room to get a planned cesarean delivery. And I say, tell me something about yourself. Like, where do you spend most of your time while it's at home? Well, what do you do at home? What do you, you know, what did you used to do before all this? Like those little investments that really help, um, Fill a void that I think is even more uh, predominant now. Now more than anything, people have resorted to, I think, especially in our medical environments, have resorted to, you know, very cut and dry, you know, interactions, uh, just like transactional uh, communication, and the people element has gone away. And so I feel like investing in each other and investing in our patients and our teams, I think, really does help a lot.
0: Laura, uh, you want to comment on that?
2: Yes, I'm
1: laughing to myself because I remember I heard the story about speed dating and the interviewer was describing how to have the most success with speed dating. And I was discussing this with my son while we were driving to a um, private school interview a couple of years ago. So I wanted to share this idea with him that they said that the best success in getting that date is with follow-up questions. And so I said to him, and it was winter and he's a big skier. So I said, so I'm pretend I'm the interviewer and you're, you're in this interview. And I say, oh, you know, wow, you're on a ski team. That's really cool. And he said, uh-huh. <laughs> and I said, and then you say, and he <laughs> says, oh, okay. I say, do you like to ski too? And I said, oh no, I'm, you know, I skied once and I broke my wrist, so no way. And he said, okay. And I said, and then, you know, <laughs> we're not getting very far with this exploring concept. Then he said, oh, well, if you don't like to ski, what do you do in the winter? And I thought, yes. <laughs> but I think it's, it's not about patient care. This is just about human interaction. And people really love being, Heard and it makes them feel special when you explore what you know when you explore what's interesting to them and what makes them
0: sort of who they are. Right. Uh, this will obviously sound extremely obvious coming from me since I'm a proponent of it so often, but it sounds like small doses of curiosity go a long way to uncovering who is the person. So we're in this swirl right now of talking a bit about emotion and cognition. And what I've heard you talk about, Laura, is the idea that although you've got to make somewhat time-pressured, quite critical decisions about the management of a patient clinically, spending some time investing in who they are personally, um, whether it's in the ICU or, Rebecca Meinhart, you were talking about it on the OB floor, understanding where that that mom is going, or what she's been doing before she came to get her C-section. I'm imagining that there's something really important about that for you and your colleagues who are clinical. And there is quite a bit of rumbling in the academic press right now and on blogs that I'm reading that and newspapers were headed for some kind of post-traumatic. Apocalypse uh, for patients for clinicians for the rest of us Um, Certainly, there's some very interesting research that came out of the SARS epidemic that noted that it had long-term deleterious impacts on many clinicians Um, their ability to bounce back um, was slow however there's also some really interesting work around the idea of post traumatic growth versus post traumatic stress. So, for critical care clinicians like yourselves, it sounds like there's some quite scary acute moments, but it's really the chronic aspect of this for you that, you know, first it was this adrenaline fueled beginning. Now that's sort of worn away, but there's still a lot of demands. Fatigue is setting in. I'm thinking there's some kind of a tipping point, you know, either on a daily basis or weekly basis, where you feel kind of like all the puff is out of your pillow and there's no getting it back. Um, And then there might be moments somehow where there's an injection of meaning or some sort of a wellspring that you're able to tap into. And I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit, Rebecca, about how that's going for you in terms of what might help you emerge from this intact or what is happening that's helping you emerge from this intact, or maybe you're not. No, I, I hope to. Um, the The things that I think have been really
2: instrumental for me have been to process a lot of this, do some cognitive reframing of some big things so for example uh i remind myself every day how much i've revised my list of to do things so in the past i was sort of blindly going down the academic pathway often at a just a dead a dead run um where i had you know 12 talks a year was flying all over the place all these things lots of papers lots of creating, you know, creating programs, that kind of stuff. And this put everything to a screeching halt and gave me pause. And so even when I have a bad day, uh, where I feel really depleted, I try to remind myself, uh, I have a little reminder on my phone, just a little, you know, that says, remember, you know, all the good that's coming from this, um, which there's some substantial, really meaningful things. So. I'm spending more time with my family. I'm actually having healthier, I'm adopting healthier routines. Um, I'm getting to pick and choose what I really enjoy doing and looking at how do I say no to other things that maybe I didn't really wanna do before, but just said I would because out of habit. Um, this has been a gift in that way. Uh, so so that's sort of how I feel like I'm trying to emerge from this stronger, better, uh, you know, more ready for,
0: The next wave that will come. So, I was talking to a colleague the other day who said, um, You know, my list of to dos is still big, but my list of to don'ts has gone up. And I had never heard of that before. And I thought maybe there's something in all this that's allowing us to make some choices about what's most meaningful to us and how do we, whether that's connection or solitude or whatever it might be. Right now, working with my coach has been
2: completely um life-changing for me. So uh when I when I talk with her, I I bring to her all of my challenges that I'm trying to figure out how to how to work through. Uh, Oftentimes I I start our calls because we do Zoom. uh, I start our calls pretty uh fatigued as well. And I end them with just a sense of a renewed sense of purpose. I have a list of ways to tackle that next challenge, the thing that's most pressing for me, that's doable, tangible, I could get this, I can get things started. So
0: that's been really helpful for me. So again, we're sort of coming back to this idea of some kind of a container. Uh, we talked at the beginning about emotion and cognition and how being present with somebody who's having emotional reactions, whether it's Caring for a patient or a patient themselves allows them to make sense of it in some way. You're talking about a similar experience with your coach. um, And this isn't somebody who's asking you to do push-ups and sit-ups, except maybe mental and emotional push-ups and sit-ups are helping you get stronger emotionally and cognitively. I'd like to um, kind of wrap this up uh, with a final topic, which is, Both of you are critical care physicians. Uh, Both of you are moms of kids who are, um, you know, kind of in their late, late, you know, single digits and early double digits. And um, I can imagine going back and forth between your critical care role and your um, parenting role can be difficult I'm wondering how you're each balancing that. I know you're both in quite different situations. So, Laura, do you mind talking a little bit about your situation first? On
1: March 12th, when schools closed, my family um, and I went to our little ski condo in New Hampshire and spent a couple of weeks. And then I needed to come back to start working in intensive care and left them there. And it was not a planned, uh, okay, see you in three months kind of, um, approach. It was just like, I'm going to go do this week of ICU. And we just really had no idea what was going to come next. And, um, now it's been two months and I haven't seen them because I've been working a lot and I didn't, there's never been a time that I could quarantine and then go spend time, um, with the family. And a lot of my colleagues are going home every night and not quarantining from family, but, um, in, the, in our situation, it just isn't, that, that isn't feasible. So I have not been with my, my family for two months, which has been really hard. Um, although I have to tell you the number of people, especially women, when I tell them um, that I haven't seen my family for two months, they say, oh my god, that's amazing. (laughs) Because I think as Rebecca might explain, it's also really hard. And in a lot of ways, I mean, I wouldn't choose what I'm doing. But after a 15 hour shift or a 25 hour shift, it's, it is kind of nice to not come home and be a mom sometimes. And um, to be able to do the kinds of resiliency things that might make me feel good, like you know, taking a walk and listen to a favorite podcast or doing yoga or just going to bed and not doing all the things that we normally just pile on to our usual um, hard jobs. So that's been my experience, which has maybe been one extreme. Yeah.
0: Um, And, you know, it's such an interesting mixture for all of us uh, here in the United States. Um, All three of us are fortunate enough to continue to have our jobs and get paychecks, and um, you both are working the most critical jobs there are in some ways right now, and it's difficult not to see your kids, it's difficult to be with your kids, and then all the rest of the humans also have all these other different challenges. Rebecca, how about you? What's your experience been like uh, working in the Massachusetts General Hospital and coming home each day to your kids? It's been really intense. Um, the So I have a middle schooler and an elementary schooler, and I
2: would say that the number and, uh, it, and quality of our talks just one-on-one with each of my children has really grown. So it's almost like my, I mean, it has always been a, a second job. You know, you come home at the end of the year. Your day at uh, working on labor delivery and the O.R.s, and then there's the family life, and then there's your second job that you kind of check in with everybody, and you're there for things. But but now it's, um, I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm a major source of support for them, uh, just because I have to be. So as you were talking about containers, safe containers, and holding, being present with people, holding a space. Uh, that's what I feel like I also do for my family. Um, and that is, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want it any other way. I wouldn't, I don't know that I would want my kids to be somewhere else right now. My daughters are going through a huge emotional development. Um, and, uh, and I feel really blessed to be a part of that. It's also really tiring.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Laura Rock.
1: I, my reaction is I'm kind of thinking to myself that, I, you know, I, I think as my, I always feel like with teenagers, you know, 90% of parenting is just showing up and I can't do that right now. And I'm not a hundred percent certain my 14 year old has noticed that I left, but my <laughs> um, my 12 year old is, is really missing me a lot and having a hard time. And, but I feel like with both of them, I just can't be the parent that I I want to be at a distance. It's just incredibly hard. And it's not just the hours that I'm working. It's, it's really hard to do this and grow a relationship and, and sort of be the support and develop that kind of connection at a distance.
2: And I don't want to lie. I, I feel like I sometimes want to escape too. So it's not all that I love being at home and love that second job. Or first job, whichever way you say it, but you know the extra job,
0: um, it's it is it is a lot. Well, uh, Laura Rock uh, and Rebecca Meinhardt, uh, we've talked about kind of balancing emotion and cognition in the critical care environment itself, um, both for your patients and and your colleagues and yourselves. Uh, We've talked a bit about um, now balancing your multiple roles. And as we kind of wrap up here, I'm harking back to this idea of growth, um, resilience. Um, And I'm wondering what, at this kind of definitional moment, um, both of you are critical care providers. Uh, You happen to be friends with each other. The three of us know each other very well. I suspect this is going to be a time that all of us will think back on many times over the coming years and might talk to our grandkids about. Uh, What are your thoughts about kind of what might tilt each one of us into a more resilient growth mode coming out of this? Than another type of trajectory.
1: So I, I think that a huge defining shift between stress and growth in response to trauma is using community and using talking. I think when we're exhausted and we're stressed and experiencing trauma, it can be a strong instinct for people to self isolate. And I think we have to that is almost never going to be effective. Um, I mean, some people might need to self-isolate in the form of a walk or playing a musical instrument or something for a while, but I think we really need to connect and lean on each other more than um, we ever did before. And um, I think this ties into the emotion, you know, into the response to emotion, the idea of of building trust and and embracing that emotion is, normal and it's welcomed and even trying to explore it with these, these little micro doses of curiosity. So, for example, if I say to my colleague, I've lost three patients in the last two days, I don't, I don't know how much more of this I can take. And my colleague says, you know, don't worry, you know what, let me give you a break, I'll cover your next overnight shift. Like, that's lovely, but it's not connecting. So, maybe I do need that break too, but it also would be really helpful if that person gets how important this emotion is and said, Yeah, this is a lot. I've been doing this for 20 years and what we're doing, I've never seen anything like this. I'm really glad you told me. And do you feel like talking more about it? So, that's really an opportunity to help someone grow and maybe has the potential to develop more resilience than just being a great colleague by giving them a break.
0: Hmm. Rebecca Meinhardt, your thoughts on this? I think
2: that I want to second that idea of community and even taking small moments to uh, talk with people, even if it's just about the mundane. I feel like um, that makes it easier for people to share more about what they're going through. There's, there's all this, we, we have to always um, hold this professional visage at work of course. Uh, And the more you get to know somebody, the more you realize how much everybody is carrying right now. Um, You know, people with family members who are affected or they've lost loved ones or whatever. And that's not always easy for people to share. And I feel like we need to just more than ever reach out to people, make it okay for people to share whatever they feel comfortable with. Uh, And they, I, I feel like those have been really revealing conversations that I've had with my colleagues, even ones I didn't know very well, just by sitting with them and asking them how they're doing and, but really being present with them and wanting to, wanting to hear more.
0: Well, Laura Rock, a pulmonologist and critical care physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And Rebecca Meinhart, obstetric anesthesiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been here with me, Jenny Rudolph, and this is COVID Chronicles. Thank you for listening, and we hope this was a bit of an oasis in your day. Remember, you're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph. Learn more at www.harvardmedicine.org.